This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alice Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week by my two colleagues, Ed Reed and Andrew Dykes, and it has been snowing here in Aberdeen, guys. But, I mean, infrastructure hasn't shut down just yet for the winter. Ed, is it uh, any better in London? Well, we've got no snow as yet. Mm. Uh, it's a bit chilly. The My, my, my car is iced over, but uh, thus far... So, ha- Andy, how, how, how's the, uh, the the snow uh, report from Edinburgh? The, uh, there was some serious snowfall last night, actually. I was saying I was uh, I went shopping, went into shop for about 90 minutes, came out, and the entire car park was completely blanketed, which was a lovely moment until you realize you have to get out from the car park to get home, uh, which was a less lovely uh, experience. <laughs> but yeah, it is, uh, it is a winter wonderland up here. Uh, it hasn't lined uh, quite so much in the city, but I think on the outskirts it's certainly uh, feeling festive. Yeah, a winter wonderland doing kind of donuts in the Tesco car park. That sounds like that's me. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Uh, okay, well let's uh, let's kick off this week, guys, and we'll we'll start with um, a story about the, the old oil and gas skills passport. There's a meeting next week in Copenhagen uh, on this and thought it'd be a good time for us to have a, a bit of a check-in because this, for anyone paying attention, it was meant to be rolled out in the third quarter of this year. It's been much delayed. It's a project most likely to be kind of a digital app of, of some description designed to allow oil workers to shift over into renewables with their transferable skills. And one of the big barriers to that has been this kind of separate certification and training costs for you know, kind of the same competencies. You've got like the Boziet for oil and gas and the BST, which is kind of an equivalent certificate for offshore wind being kind of a prime example there. So duplicated training costs, people see that and they think, oh, why am I going to bother? I'll just do something else. So trying to get rid of this this kind of redundancy, if you like, and let's not forget Renewable UK has projected something in the order of 100,000 offshore wind jobs required by 2030 in the UK. So it is, uh, as much as we have other barriers to that being achieved, the skills piece is uh, an important piece of the puzzle. Um, So we want to check in on where they are with that. So the skills body of PITO has been kind of leading on this. It's an initiative that was launched in the wake of the North Sea transition deal that was signed with the UK government in 2021. The passport has support from the UK government. It's got up to a budget of up to five million pounds from the Scottish government. Um, so not insignificant from a taxpayer perspective. And it basically needs everyone, including uh, Opito, who I say is running it, their offshore wind counterpart, GWO, and others to kind of agree on the the scope of this thing. So you've got Renewable UK, OEUK, both governments, you've got the regulators, you've got various other organizations around the table as well. They all kind of need to buy in and agree on, on what they're doing and how they're doing it. And that seems to be what's taking a lot of time. So it's obviously not going to happen in Q3. Um, John McDonald, the CEO of Apito, tells me his personal hope is they'll have something ready to go in the first half of the new year. Uh, now, that's obviously later than planned, but he was quite positive that it'll be a, a stronger product with everyone bought in, um, could have gotten it to market sooner, but without that buy-in and, and having that agreement is where is where the value lies. So it's a bit of minutia, which maybe we won't get into here, but mapping out the skills, recognizing where there's overlap and how those two can be kind of bridged together with joint certificates, that's kind of part of what's going on. As I say, it's just the number of stakeholders that's holding this up. They've got the meeting in Copenhagen next week, but the next kind of big step is going to be January 18, um, where they're going to kind of start looking at the mechanism, as I understand it. Is it a passport you kind of show at a heliport, for example? Is it something you show to your employer uh, in an interview? You know, 
the, the brunt of the legwork is kind of done here, but um, they still need to kind of work out the mechanism, which seems to me that the timeline's at risk of shifting again. So, you know, you might say we've got bigger problems here for renewables. Um, grid connection, yard space, um, a skills passport for offshore isn't, you know, you know, it, it may not necessarily be top of your list, I don't know. But if we are looking, as I say, at 100,000 wind jobs by 2030, and, and, you know, projects will be coming to our shores uh, sooner than that in many respects, it's, yeah, it's not as much time as you might think. I'm, I'm a little concerned by the suggestion that they don't know if it will be a physical passport or an app or mm. anything at this stage in creating a passport. That I think that it, this has been something that has been rumbling on for sort of two, three years as a suggestion, and then another kind of two years or whatever in delivery. And uh, I suspect if that is the case and it's sort of kicked further into 2024, uh, unions and workers will not be too pleased about that. Yeah, I, I did. I did ask John McDonald like. He didn't want to be too committal. He said that once this January 18 meeting takes place, they'll be able to be much firmer in terms of timelines. I did kind of push him on that and be like, okay, well, are we going to be here again in 12 months' time talking about the same thing? Uh, he, yeah, he said his personal hope, and they'll have something ready the first half of, of the new year. Uh, yeah, I think I think those concerns you have there, Andy, are uh, not without merit. Um, and, and yeah, time is, is ticking away. As you say, this has been going on for a long time. I, I do gather that there's quite a bit of frustration from... Um, other kind of parties around the table here about just how long it is taking. I do sympathize with the number of people you have to get on board. You know, there was a, a point in the summer we reported on uh, GWO, the offshore wind um, uh, equivalent, really not too keen on this, um, or at least having a degree of reticence. That seems to have seems to have eased over a bit. You know, Renewable UK and, and Offshore Energies UK playing a pretty strong part in terms of kind of getting everyone around the table and and in and, and an agreements, uh, as I understand it. The other thing that kind of uh, struck me as I was writing this, uh, we had a story this week, I was speaking to HSE um, about decommissioning, oil and gas decommissioning. And they say the main risk to the safety of that is that workers are going elsewhere for other opportunities like offshore wind, like hydrogen. And that's even without a skills passport. So that seems to be, that seems to be in direct contradiction. So people are managing to get find, find other opportunities Without this passport, anyway, I, I imagine that's kind of different strokes for different folks, you know, different competencies and different barriers. Um, but it does kind of, I think it just exemplifies the convoluted landscape we have at the moment. There's a lot of different things going on in the North Sea, a lot of different opportunities going on. Um, and yeah, there's, with all of that kind of happening, I suppose it's the targets, the, the, the medium term, the long term targets, the 50 gigawatts by 2030 for offshore wind that maybe maybe fall uh, at risk a bit by the wayside um yeah ed any thoughts on this do you want to do you want a skills passport i would love a skills passport i'm i'm not uh, <laughs> I, I mean I, I i could i could see a, a brave new future for myself in uh, in the renewable industry um yeah i mean i think i mean it's it's it sounds like a good move i mean i wonder why it's taken so long i mean uh, you know we've been working surely offshore wind has been going on for as i understand some years now alistair indeed um <laughs> Yes, that's a, yeah. It's it's uh it's been a it's been a good long while, as Andy said at the start. There, you know, it, it has been rolling on for in agreement and then in practice for 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 a good while now. But it's uh, and yeah, it's, it's I mean, maybe we're too in the weeds here. But my understanding is kind of it, it really comes down to the the real basics of offshore safety, right? That that there's a kind of regime and a very well established uh, understanding of what oil and gas safety is, down to like how you should hold handrails and things like that, mm. and that the standards for wind are essentially very similar, but with like different wording or a different kind of 
encompassing it's it's like trusting from a, a ctv onto a ladder and stuff has its own kind of separate understanding module and being able to prove that you can do that and so all the skills are kind of all there in the pot but just proving that you could do them <laughs> transferably and do them exactly the same way seems to be this real sticking point and obviously it's important like safety is absolutely paramount to both these industries so as you say i kind of understand why you want to get this right but it, it feels like it has it's taken a long time for for two industries that are pretty well established and have a really good kind of grounding in safety I, i'm not sure why it's it's uh, yeah, sticking so slowly. I, I might speculate at certain um, groups wanting their own um, their, their own contractors doing the work um, who've already kind of established established lines into it. But uh, you know, that's that's a speculation on my part. But um, yeah, we'll we'll see how that plays out, um, and hopefully we will have a resolution pretty soon. Um, but we'll leave the skills passport for there. And next up, it's it's Ed who's been speaking to one of I think the world's largest importer of ammonia. As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, it's all starting to uh, cop off, a phrase my learned colleague coined uh, just the other day, Edward. Um, but you've been diving into ammonia and, uh, well, well, look, it's it's a big pile of fertilizer as well. It sounds like a particularly fresh opportunity. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, in, 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 indeed. So, I mean, look, we, you know, we, we, always, we all remember, you know, just quite how excited people got about hydrogen a couple of years ago. And it seemed like it was uh, going to be the sort of the silver bullet to all uh, our energy transition needs. It was going to do, it was going to fly planes, it was going to drive cars, it was going to be home heating, it was, it was going to be everything. Uh, and then, kind of, it feels like a couple of years down the line, uh, some degree of, um, I suppose, sort of uh, maybe more clarity, should we say, has, has has emerged for this debate. And it turns out that maybe hydrogen's not going to do all of those things, right? Maybe it's not going to drive your car. Maybe it's not going to uh, heat your home. Obviously, that's a question for uh, for heated debate. Um, but, 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 but. You know, one of the areas where it seems like there's a real opportunity is obviously going into areas where hydrogen and hydrogen products are already being used, right? And so essentially moving it from, uh, say, grey hydrogen or, you know, one of those other sort of dirtier sort of uh, fuels into into some sort of cleaner, so either kind of green or, or, or blue. And obviously that is the way to uh, kind of immediately sort of tackle some of these, uh, these these emissions problems that we're facing. So it was quite interesting this week. So I, I spoke to um, a, a, a guy, Ilias Al-Fali from uh, OCP, which is uh, Morocco's state-owned fertilizer company. Um, and as you said, they're, they're, I think they're the largest uh, importer of uh, ammonia in the world. They spent something like $2 billion on it uh, last year. Um, and obviously, that is largely, I mean, pretty much exclusively, as I understand it, uh, grey. So that's, you know, very, uh, you know, emissions intensive. And a lot of that's just kind of going straight in the atmosphere, obviously not in a good way for the planet. 
So um, it was really interesting that the that Ilias uh, sort of talked me through their plans uh, this week, uh, and, and they've got this kind of major kind of well. I mean, for a start, they've, they've said you know they're, they're they're sort of aiming for, uh, for for their own sort of uh, net zero uh, scopes one and two uh, in, in in sort of you know so next ten years or so. And they're going to do this by essentially producing their own uh, green ammonia. So they've got this sort of big, uh, big, big project. I think they're going to spend something like thirteen billion dollars over the next few years. And it, it seems like um, I think the appealing thing about this project was that they are—they have a kind of a clear sort of demand projection, right? They obviously they're going to need to carry on producing fertilizer. The world needs fertilizer to produce food. And so they're kind of coming at it from the other direction. Like most people that we speak to, they say, look, I'm going to start just producing, you know, green hydrogen or whatever, and then just assume that the market will take it. And it felt like OCP was kind of tackling the project from the other end, right? They've got the demand. They're saying, look, we spent $2 billion on this last year. The price of, 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 of ammonia going, you know, all over the place, it was $1,200, it was $300, it was $600. Obviously, that 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 poses challenges, uh, kind of commercially in terms of sort of, you know, sort of future sales. How you how you price uh, your product when there's so much uncertainty around your inputs, and so tackling this by uh, creating your own, essentially your own sort of, um, you know, uh, integrated production of uh, hydrogen and ammonia uh, seems like a really kind of like an elegant way to kind of solve those problems. So, you know, it, it, it tackles that problem of kind of costing inputs and also that that kind of obviously kind of larger kind of existential problem that we're all facing around around, around tackling emissions. So it felt like a, like a really interesting uh, way to kind of take on this problem. And it, it felt like in a world where, you know, as I said, sort of hydrogen projects are also quite often produced with no clear understanding about about where these things are going it felt like this was kind of maybe a bit different obviously there were those kind of challenges around uh kind of project execution obviously a, a company that has largely been relying on uh, you know accepting kind of uh you know fertilizer sorry um ammonia ready to go uh moving into you know kind of building these projects on its own is is, is gonna you know face some challenges but it it, it feels like you know maybe things are looking fairly positive. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally recognise what, what you're saying there with the hydrogen, the, the chicken and the egg kind of problem comes up every, kind of every single time, you know, and, and we have people, uh, you know, even this week talking to us about big plans, which will be ready once the UK hydrogen economy finally kicks off. It's like, well, when 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 will that happen? But yeah, I mean, I suppose having the end product in place here, uh, as you say, Ed, and, and, you know, a, a sense of what it is they're actually going to do with, with the ammonia is really quite helpful. I wonder what that was like in terms of uh, supporting financing. I, I wonder as well, you know, is this something that others might be inclined to to kind of replicate as seeing this kind of going ahead and say, oh, this is a, this is a way forward. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, look, I think the, you know, so, so I, I asked Ilias, you know, is, you know, so, you know, obviously kind of cops kind of going on now and obviously there's kind of like an opportunity to kind of kind of go and, you know, sort of talk about your project, maybe sort of, you know, sell a piece of it. He said, look, we're not, we're not, we're not kind of desperate to bring in partners to, you know, provide that sort of support, but they are looking for partners, you know, kind of along the, you know, the, the, the value chain, like technology, there are ways in which, you know, kind of companies can come in and obviously, always you know kind of that, that that kind of pressure around kind of driving down costs which is going to be crucial for ocp and obviously you know the sort of the broader sort of hydrogen question 
I mean, I think it was, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I think, you know, the, 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 there's this kind of feeling that, you know, that the, the hydrogen debate is kind of moving on. I think, you know, so um, Atom is another company that is working on hydrogen plants. Obviously, it's, it's a sort of a much, much smaller company. It's, it's aimless, did. It's, it's sort of working in South America. And it, it's, it, it, it this week announced it was abandoning its kind of plans to, you know, produce hydrogen to sell for mobility and just focusing on fertilizer. And it feels like that there's this, this kind of sense that, you know, a kind of a clear path to market is going to play a, like a really important role in in bringing these projects forwards, right? I mean, I think you know this this sort of slightly uncertainty, and I think also you know it kind of comes down to that kind of question of the you know the quality of the resource. So, I mean, I think another thing that Ilias brought brought up was the um, the incredible kind of renewable potential that Morocco has. Obviously, um, it's North Africa, so there's a lot of sunshine. But I think the the, the really interesting thing that he was talking about was um, was wind. So onshore wind, he was saying that. In the in the south of Morocco, the the sort of the, that sort of onshore wind resource is so good that it's essentially the same as other countries' sort of offshore wind resources. And he was talking about sort of utilization of sort of 75 percent, which is kind of extraordinary. If you know, obviously, if they can kind of execute that and and you know, kind of bring that um, that uh, you know properly tap that 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 potential and, and and bring that into the into the project. So it, it felt like a real potential. And is this is the idea that they would develop those resources kind of uniquely for the project, or would they hope that they are built and then they would kind of get power via PPA or something like that? And then presumably we're just looking at electrolysis and uh, sucking in some nitrogen. Is that the deal? Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so largely, you know, the, the, the you know the, the plan is really to uh, kind of, I suppose, kind of, you know, integrate more of their supply chain, right? So obviously they 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 need a lot of that uh, that ammonia themselves. I mean, I think there are kind of broader questions, you know, there are, you know, in the longer term, Ilias kind of brought up the possibility of, uh, of you know, sort of a hydrogen pipeline into into Spain, for instance. Uh, Morocco has a, a kind of a gas pipeline that has historically been fed by Algeria. The Algerians and Moroccans fell out a couple of years ago over various issues. So the Algerians are no longer sending gas through that pipeline. So it's largely unused. So there is a possibility that, you know, if Spain could find, you know, sufficient demand and, you know, this Moroccan resource is is, is sort of sufficiently strong, then, you know, maybe they could uh, export this 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 hydrogen into Spain. I mean, I think, you know, obviously there's, there's kind of another question around, you know, how best should one, you know, transport energy, right? I think, you I know, mean, we've, we've talked about it before about, you know, do you stick uh, hydrogen in a pipeline or do you, just, do you get a, you know, sort of electricity and send it through a, and sort of an HTV DC kind of a link as the X links plan, you know, in which is based in Morocco, has got a, a sort of a power export plan to uh, to to England, um, which is a sort of another way of sort of tackling that problem. But I think it, it it's kind of looking at the same um, potential in Morocco, isn't it? Right, whether you whether you're exploding as hydrogen or ammonia or as electricity, there's clearly a renewable resource in Morocco that's uh, substantial and um, is you know presumably with costs falling can be really competitive. I, I mean, there are questions around sort of local demand. Morocco's got its own plans to reduce um you know fossil fuel use I, th- I think it still uses quite a lot of coal so that was kind of clearly you know kind of room for for potential and obviously there's there's always going to be a pressure between you to do you export uh, energy or do you keep it for your domestic purposes but it feels like you know for ocp at least that this is a, a really interesting step forward fantastic well thanks for that rundown ed uh, we're going to pivot to something completely different next and we're going to find out a bit more but when we'll get the next ceo of bp 
In a world where the scarcity of key resources is starting to be felt and the impact of climate change is all too apparent, sustainable growth is no longer a choice, it is a necessity. Sustainable Growth Voice is a new online publication championing individuals and organisations that are pushing sustainable growth forward, making a positive impact on the environment, society and the economy. From innovative technologies solving sustainability challenges to social enterprises promoting inclusive growth and transformative policy initiatives, SG Voice covers the fundamental drivers at the heart of the new sustainable economy. Join the conversation that the world needs now. Visit SG Voice for knowledge, inspiration and insight from across the sustainable growth landscape. Okay, Andrew, a bit more uh, news flow about BP this week. Uh, some more, I suppose, of speculations and unfair words, but uh, <laughs> a bit more talk of when we might get... Nothing wrong with speculation. Uh, well, what is this podcast for in the end? I mean, really, uh, a bit more a bit more on when we might get the next the next, uh, next CEO announced. Yeah, an unfair and accurate word. Uh, I spent a <laughs> yeah. long time yesterday, more time than I'd probably care to share, seeing whether we would be able to clear the rights for the succession theme to run this segment, but I don't know that we are. So, but imagine <laughs> the succession theme is playing as we speak about this. Uh, but yeah, this is the news that BP is still on the hunt for its new CEO two months after the departure of Bernard Looney. For anyone who hasn't followed this, uh, I don't know where you've been, but in late September, uh, Mr. Looney abruptly resigned after he was found not to have been fully transparent about former personal relationships with colleagues uh, and the suggestions that he misled BP's board uh, over those relationships. So one thing that kind of came out this week is that investigation is uh, still continuing. Um, the company is now looking to complete it and close it out by the end of the year and uh, coming to a resolution on a payout for Mr. Looney. Uh, the fact that it was a resignation is apparently going to be a factor in that payout. Um, but obviously last year he kind of made headlines with like 10, 10 million pound pay packet for 2022, um, served most of the year. So I don't know kind of what the reflections are going to be on that, but I'm certainly, there'll be another story in that, uh, come, uh, January time. I think I can't imagine there being any flack around that. Story <laughs> at all, I don't know. Uh, so at the time uh, of his departure, it was announced that, uh, finance chief, uh, Mari Alkenkloss would step up to the role of interim CEO. He's now uh, steered the company through its first Q3 results. I think he did uh, an investor sort of capital markets day in the States as well. Um, so he's had a little bit of time to, to bed into that. Um, he was questioned at the, the last results call as to whether he had already been granted the position. I think uh, some uh, PowerPoints went out or, or some notes around the call that had just referred to him as CEO and someone kind of jumped the gun and suggested that, does that mean he's he's already been anointed? He uh, assured everyone that uh, he had not, and both him and the interim CFO, Kate Thompson, would uh, remain as interim titles until this search had been completed. Um, and the search is clearly widening. So I think last week we heard that uh, the executive search firm Egon Zender had been brought in to help identify a replacement to go out to market. Um, Obviously, that's a bit of due diligence from BP, probably, to see what external candidates there are. Um, but usually, it does go internal for these roles. I think the past sort of three or four have all been internal uh, candidates. I'm trying to think if they've ever had an external. They, they must have done at some point or the other. But yeah, it seems like it's been decades, right? I mean, yeah. Certain, certainly, in kind of recent memory, yeah, they're mostly uh, BP long-time servers. Oh, but I mean... Are. I think it's also. I mean, I, I you know, I don't, I don't want to, you know, sort of, you know, bring up uh, sling too much mud. But I think it's also worth noting that uh, Lord Brown, Tony Hayward, and Bernard Looney have all seemingly resigned, possibly before their time was due. It's a diplomatic way. Of so maybe it. it might be a good thing to look uh, slightly further, further afield. Yeah, I was, I was looking back on that. Last night. It was a difficult run, certainly. I think, um, I think Tony Hayward was kind of quietly replaced. So it certainly was. 
not directly at the time of Deepwater Horizon, but it wasn't unrelated, I feel. Um, but yeah. So in, in a note this week, uh, RBC Capital Markets Analyst uh, Biraj Borkataria suggested that uh, Mr. Ockenkloss is likely to be confirmed as CEO in their opinion. Uh, that will be over the coming months, and he is viewed by RBC as the most logical successor. Uh, he was saying that an external hire would add more uncertainty to the company's overall strategy while also raising questions about board competence. It's probably worth pausing there, just the fact that BP's uh, sort of being seen as underperforming at the moment, I think compared to some of its rivals, had a disappointing set of results in Q2 and Q3. And, and there is a suggestion, kind of this uh, departure of Mr. Looney's a, a bit of a brewing uh, crisis around the strategy for the company. Um, so clearly the next candidate has to be someone to, as uh, Mr. Borktari is saying, you know, symbolically steady the ship. So other people in the mix, other than uh, Mari Ockenkloss, uh, Bloomberg did a kind of rundown uh, last month uh, to pointing at some of the potential internal candidates. Uh, they pointed to the former Statoil and Equinor head Helga Lund, who's currently the chairman of BP. Uh, obviously, strong front runner potential, but I understand that he is leading the board in the search for that <laughs> position. I don't know how that would work. Might be something of a conflict of interest. Do you know what? You would think. I think I should be in this. <laughs> it's, you know, in this industry, I, I'm, it's not beyond the realms of possibility, but I suspect that uh, he is, he's maybe an outside choice despite his uh, kind of statesmanship. Um, there's the American executive uh, vice president, William Lin, who currently uh, leads on the region's uh, corporates and solutions division. He's done a lot of work in Egypt and a lot of uh, work in Asia Pacific. Um, but obviously, I, I don't know how much BP sort of still consider them still considers them core. Um, maybe that counts against them. We also have the gas and low carbon business head, Anya Isabel Dotsenrad. So she's the former boss of RWE and the head of renewables at E.ON. And she's overseeing their integration of gas, renewables, hydrogen and biofuels. Again, feels very forward thinking, uh, feels very kind of of the, uh, the strategic direction that BP would like to position itself as well in tandem with, uh, with hydrocarbons. Um, obviously, she's kind of led RW, a pretty big uh, generator in, in Europe. Uh, and notably, BP hasn't had a woman helming the company before. So that would be kind of a pretty big strategic step for them, I think, and, and certainly for Do Image. Think, I, I, kind of want, I kind of want to interrogate that one because, yeah, I mean, she's, in terms of their strategic direction, she seems the obvious choice, but obviously not somebody who's got as much of a background in fossil fuels. And then there's this issue about underperforming perception and shareholder perform. I mean, yeah, I mean, to what extent does appointing someone, you know, who's CEO, to what extent is their background going to play a, a, a part in terms of market perception about the performance of the company? You know, do you know what I mean? I'm just I'm quite interesting to see how that that plays out. I mean, um, she is also, if, if I think about image as well, and I think about the people that we see in kind of our daily reporting, she's kind of very much the forefront of, of a lot of the kind of press releases and things that BP put out, a lot of the stuff they're getting into kind of often comes with a quote or, or a point of view from her as head of that division. Um, so I think it's interesting. I think she certainly would kind of bring that, you know, first foot forward on this kind of, sort of green electron value chain that we heard about in their, in their last results and about integrating, you know, all the way from offshore wind through to your, your charging points, through to your hydrogen and refining and everything. There's a kind of really interesting uh, play for that, I think. So yeah. Uh, you know, smart money potentially on uh, on Ms. Dotsonrad. Uh, there's also the former upstream head Gordon Birrell, who is now executive VP for production and operations. I think potentially former North Sea experience. I think went to the states. Mm, yeah, uh, yeah. Maybe yeah, wrong on that one, but um, sea, think, yeah. certainly another BP longtime service. 
Um, but I looked it up, you know, BP has <laughs> more than 67,500 employees, obviously not suggesting all of them are in the running, <laughs> but it has a, a significant network. And I think it's also worth saying that, you know, various people that have done very well in the group itself have then gone on to other roles. I think the head of Rolls Royce, uh, Tufian Ergen Biljic, uh, he's also, uh, he left in 2020 after turning around their downstream uh, division. He also brought in another BP staffer to help him at uh, Rolls Royce recently, Nicola Grady Smith. Um, so, you know, th these networks, I think, extend quite far into industry. I don't know that he would necessarily come back so soon after then kind of taking up a role at something like Rolls Royce. But these, uh, these networks do go on and on. I mean, okay. So clearly, it feels like the the kind of the tension is there between obviously kind of BP's strategic plan, which Looney set out, right? This kind of move, obviously, more into the energy transition, and it feels like if the board believes in that, then they're going to have to try and bring in, you know, obviously, one of those people who's kind of on the inside, because it feels like if you bring in someone from the outside, that there's going to be more pressure for them to kind of change and maybe be like, oh no, actually, maybe we do want to develop oil, we do want to develop gas. I mean, I remember, I mean, I wrote something fairly recently about BP kind of being a bit sort of shirty about not moving forwards with some sort of LNG projects in sort of Mauritania, Senegal, quite as quite as fast as as it had been planned. And it feels like that's kind of very kind of uh, emblematic of, of the kind of the current direction, doesn't it? It feels like they don't really want to do kind of uh, oil and gas that much anymore. And it, it, if they want to kind of preserve that kind of transition direction, then Moroccan class or or, or uh, and Marie Dozenrath might might be, would be kind of a, a stronger choice to kind of keep steadying the ship. I, I think what's interesting is also the, the timing of this. So obviously. Uh, this week it said that the search was, was continuing and they've obviously brought in these executive searches. They're saying that they don't expect to appoint a new CEO until the first quarter of, of 2024. And uh, I think Reuters was saying it was potentially to coincide with the announcement of their full year earnings in February. That feels like a big moment <laughs> to announce your full year takings and also that you've kind of got a, a new uh, CEO. Maybe it's the perfect moment and maybe it buys you a bit of time strategically in that you can kind of say, well, that was, the, that was last year. And, you know, we're going to let this person bed in and then shortly we're going to kind of bring to you our strategy for this year. But it also feels like if those results don't quite go as people plan, you know, do you then have someone who's kind of not as well briefed and isn't quite as well embedded suddenly going out in front but if, of people if, going? If those results don't don't go as well as planned, then it's it's a great time to bring in like a new exactly. person to say, actually, I'm going to turn this around. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I think it's worth saying as well, you know, on that strategic direction, a lot can be done in, in a short space of time for these, even at these massive companies. I think, you know, look at uh, kind of Wells Sawan's performance at Shell over the past nine months. It seems like we, a real kind of line in, in the sand, some, some markers around what the company will and won't do. And those have been kind of tricky discussions, I think, in some places. Um, but certainly he has made a mark as someone who's prepared to kind of implement a bit of change of strategy. So I think a watching brief for sure. Um, but I'm Team Murray. I'm, I'm, just, I'm going to put my flag <laughs> Team Murray. Team Murray. <laughs> Continuity candidate. Wow, <laughs> you should... wow, you've just come out with it. Here, here's what I'm hearing. Um, the search is still ongoing. It's not too late to put our uh, hats in the ring, <laughs> what about What about a job share? Job share, yeah. I mean, I, I think we can definitely present it to the board, um, see, see if Big Helga is, uh, is up for that, and then... Uh, Make a decision from there. Okay, yeah, um, I'll, uh, I'll brush up my CV today and then uh, let's get it in on Monday. Well, on that bombshell, the Energy Voice will be leading BP in the new year. Uh, that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thank you, Ed and Andy, for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com 
Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.